Scripture reading comes this morning again from Acts chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. Uh, This past Sunday, I preached on this same text. Uh, The sermon this morning is not part two of last Sunday's sermon, however. We're going to approach this text this morning from a completely different angle. So as we prepare to Hear the word of God read and proclaimed. Let us pray together. Almighty, gracious Father, the true understanding of your holy word helps us to grow into the fullness of the salvation you so freely offer to us in Jesus Christ. So we ask that your word would move among us with power this day. Grant to all of us that our hearts, being freed from worldly affairs, may hear and grasp your holy word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will, cherish it, and live by it with all earnestness, to your praise and honor and glory. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 40. For hear the word of the Lord, it is written. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. As I mentioned this last Sunday, this morning we're going to push into the main aspect of this passage, which is the rejection of the gospel by the Jews and the reception of the gospel by the Gentiles here at Pisidian Antioch. Now, we need to note that it wasn't all of the Jews, but only some of them who rejected the gospel on that day. We're told back in verse 43 that that previous Sabbath day, that there were many Jews who were following Paul and Barnabas and who were urged by them to continue in the grace of God. And this would seem to indicate that There were many Jews there who, having heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, placed faith in Jesus. 
Nonetheless, there were other Jews who became filled with jealousy when they saw the crowds of Gentiles gathered at the synagogue to hear the gospel on that next Sabbath day. You see, they might have been fine with God-fearing Gentiles, devout converts to Judaism, hearing the gospel and receiving it, but they were not fine with the thought that the promises of God could also be for those who were outright pagans, for they were not considered worthy of the grace of God. And Paul and Barnabas were not differentiating between Jew and Gentile in the gospel they proclaimed. They were holding out the promises of God not only to the Jews, but also to these pagans. They were declaring to them all of these promises could be theirs by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, now this is clearly wrong and needed correcting according to these Jews. The Gentiles couldn't be equal beneficiaries with the Jews of the promises of God, right? They couldn't be equal members of God's family, right? This is the issue here. And now, with almost the whole city gathered to hear the gospel in this predominantly Gentile place, there was no, this was no time for a lack of clarity that these pagan Gentiles could not be equals simply by repenting of their sins and placing faith in Jesus Christ. It was a moment in which one needed to exercise discernment in communicating who God was and is, who he found acceptable, and who could be welcomed into his family. And all of these pagans, who probably in the days leading up to this Sabbath day had been participating in some way in the religion of the imperial cult that was so prominent there, and who now were gathered to hear what Paul and Barnabas had to say, surely were not worthy to be recipients of God's covenant promises. So these Jews set to clear things up. Luke tells us in verse 45 that they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. Don't you Gentiles think for one second that what Paul and Barnabas are saying applies to you? God's grace isn't for you. You have to get cleaned up to be found acceptable to God. Paul apparently doesn't have much clarity in his thinking and speaking. But Paul and Barnabas said what they meant, and they meant what they said. And this caused great offense. And the offensiveness of the pagans being preached the promises of God was way more than some of these Jews could handle. Why? because they really didn't understand the gospel at all. They had rejected the righteousness of God provided in Jesus Christ. To them, it was salvation by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, plus something. Plus first becoming Jewish, which meant outward conformity to the law being circumcised, submitting oneself to dietary restrictions and purity rites, observing religious festivals. Get yourself 
cleaned up and set right, and then God will accept you. But that wasn't the gospel that Paul was preaching. The gospel that Paul was preaching was not the gospel plus anything. It was justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Pastor John preached on this a few Sundays ago. The gospel that Paul preached was that all of us have fallen short of God's glory and are unworthy of his love, Jew and Gentile alike. It was that God sent his son to suffer and die for us even while we were yet enemies. As the one great atoning sacrifice offered once and for all. And that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover all of our sins. The gospel that Paul preached was that there was nothing that we can do to earn salvation. So it urged anyone and everyone to come humbly before God, to cast themselves at the foot of the cross, looking to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And there weren't any prerequisites for coming to Jesus. You didn't need to convert to Judaism. You didn't need to be circumcised. You didn't need to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But simply by acknowledging that you were a sinner in need of God's salvation, placing faith in Jesus Christ, humbly submitting yourself and your life to him as Savior and Lord, you can become a full member of God's family, one of the true children of Abraham. But these Jews were still set on making themselves righteous. They were still set on taking part in earning their salvation. And they were arrogant in their identity as the children of Abraham. They were the chosen ones who had been claimed by God, to whom God had revealed himself. And they wanted nothing to do with these unclean pagans. But this attitude toward the gospel, this attitude toward the Gentiles, was a rejection of the gospel. A rejection that God alone saves apart from the works of men and women. A rejection of God's plan to save people of every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. So in verses 46 and 47, Paul meets their contradiction of the gospel that he proclaimed with the truth of God's word. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It wasn't as though Paul took any pleasure in proclaiming this to these Jews whom he considered his people. But he declared to them truth. They had rejected the gospel. They had rejected the righteousness offered in Jesus Christ. They had rejected the task of Israel to reveal God and his salvation to all nations. And in doing so, they had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And in some mysterious turn of God's providence, the words God spoke through his prophet Isaiah that God would use his people as a light for the Gentiles were still being fulfilled, even in the rejection of the gospel by these Jews. For this is a circumstance that brings about the gospel being proclaimed and received 
by the Gentiles. Now, this is a very difficult matter for us. Why so many of God's covenant people, the Jews, rejected the gospel? And it was for the Apostle Paul as well. This is why we see him wrestling with it in Romans chapters 9 through 11, which actually serve as a sort of exposition of this passage in Acts 13. And it's helpful for us to consider these chapters in Romans as we seek to understand Acts chapter 13. What we see in Romans is that the rejection of the gospel by the Jews was a matter of intense grief for Paul. To see so many of his people reject Jesus as the Christ and thus to reject the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ and to forsake their hope of God's steadfast love. This is why Paul was with great zeal preaching the gospel among them in order that they might be saved. But Paul also provides in Romans 9 through 11 some explanation of the Jews' rejection of the gospel. I want to encourage you to read through those chapters in their entirety this afternoon. But Paul says in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25 and following, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, there are a few things we want to note here. First, Paul says that God's purposes are a mystery. It's not a mystery in the sense that it's some kind of secret knowledge that only some have. Rather, it's a mystery because we might not fully understand it. We don't fully understand it. But it has been revealed by God as reality, as truth. Some of God's people would reject the gospel for the sake of God's larger plan of salvation. Second, part of the purpose here that has been revealed by God is that by way of the Jews' rejection of the gospel, the gospel might go forth to the Gentiles in order that his salvific plan would include both Jews and Gentiles, and that plan would come to pass. And that's exactly what we see happening here in Acts 13. Uh, Paul will later say in Romans 11 that in regard to the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake, meaning for the sake of the Gentiles. And while it might be difficult for us to understand why in God's providence the Jews have to reject the gospel for it to be offered to the Gentiles, we should recognize that it was by way that it was by God's ordaining that the crucifixion of Jesus, which brought about salvation, came by way of the Jews' rejection of Jesus. And the reason for this was that God might confront sin at its deepest point. At the point at which God's own people rejected him, even putting his sinless son to death. And in this way, sin and death were overcome by God and salvation was made available to all. So it was by God's 
design that he would use his people, even in their rejection of him, to work out his salvific purposes. And even here, in Acts 13, the rejection of Jesus by the Jews was continuing to work according to God's salvific purposes. His plans have not been thwarted to save those whom he has elected. The third thing that we see in these chapters in Romans uh, is that they help us to understand that through the salvation of the Gentiles, God would bring the Jews to salvation themselves. One of the things we see in Acts 13 is that the presence of the Gentiles created jealousy in the Jews. This jealousy was not merely a means of their rejecting the gospel, though. Paul notes in Romans 11, 11, that it is through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And that is to say that it is through the Jews' rejection of the gospel that the Gentiles would receive it, but that it was in the Jews receiving the promises of the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ that the Jews would be made jealous And this jealousy would ultimately lead some of them to receive the gospel as they began to envy the blessings and desire these promises for themselves that the Gentiles had come to possess. Therefore, in God's unfolding plan of salvation, there is this chain reaction from the Jews to the Gentiles to the Jews. And Paul will say in Romans 11 that the Jews ultimately receiving the gospel would lead to even greater blessing for the entire world. So we see in Romans that the Apostle Paul began to understand this as an aspect of his ministry to the Gentiles to bring about jealousy in his people in order to bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. Jealousy, by the way, was a means by which God had worked to bring his people back to him throughout history. Whenever his people were straying, God worked to bless Gentiles in order that his people would see and desire those blessings for themselves. Now, one thing we need to clarify here in Romans, when Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved, this shouldn't be interpreted that all those who claim to be children of Abraham will be saved in the end. It isn't every single Israelite. Rather, it meant that all of the true Israel would be saved, all those who were claimed by God as part of his elect people. As Paul states in Romans 11, as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. There is then an anticipation that God's chosen people will in time be brought to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Even though at present their hearts have been hardened, it was only temporary. They would in time, in God's time, place faith in Jesus Christ. 
So I believe that these chapters of Romans help us to understand Acts 13 and will help us to understand the chapters to come as Paul continues to go first to the Jews, often beginning his evangelistic efforts in the synagogues. And we will see resistance and rejection by the Jews, but Paul will persist in this pattern. In all of this, though, we see very clearly that God is sovereign over salvation. And this is what we need to hear. God is sovereign over salvation. God is bringing all those whom he had chosen from the foundation of the world to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Every single one. Not one is lost, nor were any gained who were not chosen. But all is done in accordance with God's sovereign plan. Pay attention to this in the weeks to come. And so while we might not understand the why here, we might not understand why God in his sovereign purposes has hardened the heart of some that others might receive the gospel, we do want to affirm the how and the what. We want to affirm here that all of this is happening according to the sovereign purposes of God. We also want to affirm that those who are being saved are saved by their personal decision to place faith in Jesus Christ, while others are condemned for their decision to reject the gospel. And we might say, well, how is that so? How is one making a decision for Jesus Christ or rejecting Jesus Christ in any way, a real decision if it has all been ordained by God. It might seem to us that this is not a real decision because it is all playing out as has been sovereignly ordained by God. This is a problem that people have with what we refer to as the doctrines of grace. And we just spent 12 weeks covering this in Sunday school. And here it is shown in just a few verses of Scripture. The issue isn't that both human responsibility and God's sovereignty of, over salvation are hard to see in Scripture. They aren't. They are both clearly present here. And Luke doesn't flinch. He puts human responsibility right next to God's sovereignty without blinking without any apology for what seems to us to be a clear contradiction. Here it is, especially seen in verse 48, when Luke, after telling us how the Jews rejected the gospel and the Gentiles received this, tells us, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That is a statement of God's election. Well, which is it? Is man responsible for making a decision to receive or reject Jesus, or is God entirely sovereign over salvation? We think that both can't be right because we can't make sense of it in our heads. Surely the text doesn't mean what it seems to say, but it does mean exactly what it says. And we're reminded that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Just because we don't understand, it doesn't mean it isn't so. God does many things that we don't understand or that we can't see good purpose in, and yet there is 
divine purpose. So the problem isn't that it is hard to see. The problem is that it is hard to swallow. And my guess is that the problem swallowing this truth isn't on the side of human responsibility. We don't have any problem accepting that each person is responsible for the decision that he or she makes in regard to Jesus Christ. But even while this is the case, it might unhinge our modern sensibilities to see so clearly that we are not actually the captain of our own fate, the master of our own destiny. It might make us feel uncomfortable that our will isn't as free as we would like to imagine it is, or that for those who are slaves to sin, that they are utterly incapable of choosing Jesus Christ in and of themselves. They are utterly incapable of living a life pleasing to God, but they are still responsible for their sin. Or that we can truly come to God freely by our own initiative, even though he has ordained it and freed us and induced us to place faith in Jesus Christ. As one biblical scholar comments about verse 48, though, in this phrase, we encounter the same balance between human volition, human will, and divine providence that is found throughout Acts. On their part, these Gentiles took an active role in believing and committing themselves to Christ, but it was in response to God's Spirit moving in them, convicting them, appointing them for life. All salvation is ultimately only by the grace of God. And we should see how great the grace of God really is. It really doesn't depend on us at all. God has provided for our salvation at every point, which we should see as good news. And it should bring us great comfort to know that God brings about faith in his elect, not because of anything good in us or any decision that we make, but solely by his grace and mercy. And that he will not let go of his elect, but will bring them home to glory. His purposes are never thwarted, not by our decisions or by our sinful desires or by anything else. He will bring to completion the work he began in us. And we might be thinking, well, okay, besides the comfort and encouragement that our salvation is in the hands of a good and gracious God, what are the practical applications for us here? What does this mean for us in terms of how we go about living our lives? And make no mistake, this isn't just some highfalutin theology. This has very real implications for our lives. And I want to give you then, very briefly, five very important applications that we can take out of Acts 13. So first, evangelism should never be neglected by the church of Jesus Christ. Evangelism should never be neglected by the church of Jesus Christ. Knowledge of God's sovereignty over salvation has resulted for some in the erroneous idea that evangelism is unimportant. Unfortunately, this question has been all too frequently asked. What is the point of sharing the gospel if God has already chosen those whom he will save and will accomplish his purposes anyhow? The Apostle Paul had a very clear understanding of God's sovereignty over salvation. 
But right in the middle of these chapters of, in Romans of God's sovereign saving purposes among both the Jews and the Gentile, Paul declares that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks, as I mentioned last Sunday, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So Paul made it his life's purpose to proclaim the gospel boldly and broadly, understanding that God has ordained to bring his elect to faith through the preaching of his gospel. And we see this very thing playing out right before our eyes in Acts 13. Some have their hearts hardened. Some are brought to saving faith. All are responsible for their decisions but God is sovereignly at work in all of it. And he's using the preaching of the gospel to harden or soften hearts. This is how God works. Therefore, we mustn't neglect what God has called us as his church to do. First, because God has commanded us to do it. And second, because we know that God has not just ordained the ends, he has also ordained the means. The second application for us in Acts 13 is that evangelism to Jews should never be neglected. Evangelism to Jews should never be neglected. Despite the rejection by the Jews that Paul and Barnabas face in Antioch, chapter 14 will begin with them in a new location heading straight to the synagogue. Some would be, as Paul calls them in Romans, the believing remnant. Some would be those whose hearts were hardened in order that the gospel might pass to the Gentiles. Some of those who heard the gospel proclaimed were not part of the true Israel at all. But Paul, nonetheless, follows the pattern to the Jew first and then the Gentile because he understood it to be God's will. And even while we live in a different place in time than the Apostle Paul, one biblical scholar notes, this priority was a matter of theological necessity, and it applies to the conduct of Christian mission today. We make, must make sure Jews are not overlooked, but are a priority in any evangelistic thrust into an unreached people's area. It is perhaps the case that God is continuing to use Gentile Christians to bring Jews who are members of the true Israel to faith in Jesus Christ. This means that we don't want to neglect giving witness to Jesus Christ among our Jewish friends, just as we shouldn't any other people group. But I want to note this in particular because there might be a tendency to think, oh, well, well, they were God's covenant people, so God will save them in the end anyhow. Or we might hesitate to seek to evangelize among Jews given the history of the Jewish people and the horrors they have faced sometimes very unfortunately in the name of Christianity throughout history and especially in the 20th century. But we must seek to evangelize the Jewish people. Third, in the words of John Stott, evangelism has hope of success only if it, if it rests on the election of God. Evangelism has hope of success only if it rests on the election of God. And we don't want to miss the importance of this point. This is why the disciples could so easily shake the dust off their feet and move on joyfully, as we are told they did in verses 51 and 52. How is this the case? 
How can they seem to have failed to reach so many Jews with the gospel and not feel terribly depressed by that reality, not feel like total failures? Because they know that they have done what the Lord has called them to do and that he has done through them what he purposed. They can be confident that they were faithful in their task and that the Lord would be faithful in his, his word not returning to him void. Here's the important lesson of Acts 13. Salvation doesn't depend on the apostles or anyone else for that matter, preaching the gospel convincingly enough. It doesn't depend on the, the, the preacher's creativity. It doesn't depend on if they were entertaining or humorous in their delivery. It doesn't depend on their charisma, as we often think of the word. It merely depended on their faithfulness to proclaim it. God does the work from there. And this lifts a huge burden from the one who is sharing the good news of the gospel. It means that you are never responsible for whether or not the ones hearing the proclamation of the gospel respond in faith. Beyond your responsibility to faithfully proclaim the gospel, the reception of the gospel doesn't depend on you at all. God alone can penetrate hearts and minds with the gospel. He alone will work out his purposes to harden hearts or soften them. Fourth, there's a warning here to be careful about who we consider unworthy to receive the gospel. The result of evangelism is that salvation through faith brings about blessings in the life of those saved by God's grace, which arouses jealousy in others. We might discover that we are the ones in whom jealousy is aroused. So it might just be that God is using the unexpected or unlikely conversions of others to confront us in our own sin and misunderstanding of the gospel. Now, my personal tendency is to think that I would never consider anyone unworthy to receive the gospel. But is that really the case? Do I really hope that in God's eternal kingdom, I can sit next to those who I once considered my greatest enemies. Those who thought and acted differently than I did. Those who came from different backgrounds. How about a Nazi? How about an Islamic jihadist? A lifelong criminal? And if so, are we working toward that sort of end in those we are seeking to reach with the gospel? God's grace is big enough to cover the worst of sins. And if we don't accept that on a very practical level, it could be that we don't think our sins are all that bad. Fifth and finally, the goal of our evangelism is to reach those whom God has chosen from the foundation of the world with the gospel in order that God might bring them to faith through the hearing of his gospel. But the ultimate goal is that God would be glorified. Here in Acts 13, the result of evangelism is Gentiles coming to faith and rejoicing in glorifying God. Even as some have their hearts hardened, there is still an abundance of joy because there is an understanding that God is working all things according to his sovereign purposes in order that he might receive glory. 
This is why Paul concludes Romans 11 by exclaiming, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We too should never fail to give God glory in all things. Whether our evangelism appears to be a success or a failure, it is all to God's glory. And to him be all praise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do give you all the glory. We give you all the glory for our salvation. Help us, according to your calling on our lives, to spread abroad the glory of your name until every ear has heard every member of the elect drawn in until Jesus Christ comes again. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? 